It's Friday, February 9th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. In this post-truth world we're living in, information that doesn't fit with an individual's worldview can be easily tuned out, obfuscated, or written off as fake news. That makes it harder than ever to get through to people with an environmental message. Even those who might be receptive can still be hard to reach when your message is just one of thousands competing for their attention every minute. And supposing you are able to get someone's undivided attention, how do you keep it? How do you make technical information accessible? How do you make those sometimes dry details compelling? As humans, we just don't respond to facts when we're making decisions as much as we would like that to be true. Um, But mainly we make decisions based on our more emotions or our gut instinct. And so um, bringing artists into the mix appeals to people on that level. Using the arts to break through the noise and make environmental issues feel urgent and real. That's coming up. First, let's check out a few upcoming dates on the PEC events calendar. Saturday, February 10th, join the Delaware River City Corporation in conjunction with Philadelphia Parks and Recreation and Friends of Penny Walk for a winter nature hike along the paths and wooded areas of Penny Pack on the Delaware Park. Participants will be guided by nature experts in a variety of activities, including a nature hike through forest restoration and shoreline projects. They'll get a chance to identify native insect species and do some bird watching. The event is free and open to all ages. That's Saturday, the 10th of February. Heads up, the 23rd of February is the deadline for Laurel Highlands Conservation Landscape mini-grant applications. PEC is administering a total of $50,000 from the DCNR Community Conservation Partnership Program Environmental Stewardship Fund. It will provide mini-grants of up to $10,000 for projects that support and advance the goals and objectives of the conservation landscape, which covers Cambria, Fayette, Somerset, and Westmoreland counties in southwestern Pennsylvania. You can apply online at PECPA.org. Again, the deadline is February 23rd. And for more information on that program and how to apply, you'll want to check out our last episode from January 26th, also on the website, PECPA.org. We'll have the link from this episode. Also on Friday, February 23rd, continuing through the 24th on Saturday, the Keystone Coldwater Conference. That's happening at the Ramada Inn Conference Center at State College. The 13th Keystone Coldwater Conference is billed as an opportunity for grassroots conservation organizations, environmental professionals, college, faculty, staff, and students to share ideas, concepts, and network in order to protect, conserve, and restore Pennsylvania's coldwater resources. Again, the Keystone Coldwater Conference, Friday, February 23rd through Saturday, the 24th. Details on all of these events and more at the PEC website, PECPA.org slash events. If you or your organization has an upcoming event that you'd like us to share, by all means, get in touch by sending an email to legacies at PECPA.org. A new art exhibition at the Schuylkill Center for Environmental Education in Philadelphia tells the story of four local rivers and their watersheds through sculpture, photography, installations, and digital multimedia works. Each piece is a meditation on names and naming. 
the way that having a name makes a place or a thing real and present in our lives and thereby makes us feel ownership and responsibility for these named things. It's a concept that's being applied to rivers and streams to get people to identify more closely with uh, issues of water quality and watershed health. I spoke with the Schuylkill Center's Director of Environmental Art, Christina Cadenese, about the exhibition, which opened last week. It's titled Learn a River's Name and about how the arts can be a powerful tool for environmental communications. Well, the Schuylkill Center has been around uh, since 1965. Uh, It was established as one of the first, if not the first, um, nature center located in a major metropolitan area. We're very fortunate to have 340 acres of undeveloped land, forests and fields, streams and ponds, uh, in the northwest section of Philadelphia. It's hard to believe when you're on our property, but technically we are within the city limits of Philadelphia. And as far as we know, we're the largest privately owned open space um, in the city. So we have this really rich uh, land that we use for a wide variety of environmental education programming opportunities, um, everything from school groups coming to visit us for their field trips to our senior environment corps who collect data in our streams uh, to the nature preschool that we run on site where three to five-year-olds are outside every day getting immersed in nature to the environmental art program. The environmental art program is a little bit newer in the history of the Schuylkill Center. It was established in the early 2000s, and it really provides us with another way to bring maybe a different kind of person into environmental topics. So many people who are trained in science or feel comfortable in science uh, respond to more traditional presentations of environmental information and scientific information. But that's certainly not the case for everyone, and it's especially not the case, I think, for some of the audiences that are typically a little bit less, have a little less access to nature or to scientific information. It's also proven that as humans, we just don't respond to facts when we're making decisions as much as we would like that to be true. Mainly, we make decisions based on our more emotions or our gut instinct. And so um, bringing artists into the mix appeals to people on that level and can kind of go beyond just presentations of charts and graphs in a traditional scientific way, um, but make that data and make the information more accessible to people and a little bit more relevant and human. So that's why we do environmental art programming at the Google Center, and we have both an indoor gallery space as well as um, we do exhibitions outdoors on the trails as well. Can we expand a little bit on that philosophy? Some examples maybe of what kinds of things art can show or say or get at that other ways of looking at the world don't do as well, like scientific, technical language. Like what what can you convey through art that you couldn't otherwise? One thing on the more kind of data side, I alluded to that before, is that um, a lot of artists either visualize or sonify data. So instead of looking at the traditional hockey stick graph, for example, when we think about climate change, I've seen artists who use that graph as uh, the basis for for a painting, but they use watercolors to depict um, like rising sea levels or increasing forest fires or declining glacial mass in a more uh, in a beautiful way, but use it, use the framework of the data as something that informs their painting. Jill Pelto is that artist; she's really wonderful. I've also encountered artists who make music out of data, in which they make a connection between like the 
the points of data and the notes. And so, like, as increasing temperatures, for example, with regards to climate change go up, the, the pitch of the music also goes up. And so you can kind of hear the data and sense it in a different way than if you were just looking at, at a chart or a graph. Another thing artists are really good at is making the invisible more visible. And so um, impacts of various environmental challenges that might go unseen, um, artists can help us see those things by calling attention to them. Um, a lot of our outdoor pieces, artists are often working directly with ecological processes as well and um, benefiting the land by way of their installations. So um, their sculptures not just look beautiful, but maybe they're helping us to manage stormwater on our trails. And they're, you know, it's a sculpture that diverts the stormwater and helps it absorb into the ground, um, as well as being an interesting visual experience. So there's a whole range of, of ways that um, artists can play a really important role, not only in awareness building, but in creative solution development as well. So you've taken this concept and you've applied it to this local, regional issue. Tell me about the Learn a River's Name exhibition. What kind of work is included and what do you hope visitors to the exhibition will take away from the experience? As first, I can note that in 2018, the Schuylkill Center as a whole is putting a focus on water in our programming. So throughout the year, we'll have an intentional focus on water in various ways throughout um, the programs we do this year. And so this is the first this is the first thing that we're presenting as part of that year of water and it's the first uh, response of the art program to to that thematic emphasis. So when I curate shows at the Google Center, it's really important to me that they're locally relevant uh, to our audiences. So even though things like the Arctic and the Amazon are, are very important in our global environmental consciousness, that's often not the thing that connects people to these issues. Um, so if they don't see how it matters to them where they live in their lives, then it's often more difficult to get them involved in, in whatever the issue is. So that's always really important to me, which is why we focused on uh, regional rivers mostly in the watershed where Philadelphia is located, but all within kind of driving distance of the city of Philadelphia. And the concept of the show um, and the, the title, Learn a River's Name, comes from a really wonderful op-ed that I read in the New York Times written by Akiko Bush last year that talks about naming as kind of the first step in taking care of something in nature and names as a way that we build relationship, not just with each other, but with the living world and with water bodies and, and things like that. So that's the kind of the concept of the show is um, a name of a water body as like a way to be known, a kind of a first step on meaningful connections between people and their water bodies. So all of the artists in the show, there's seven of them, had a focus on a particular body of water that they got to know really well over the course um, often of a pretty long-term investigation um, either residency or just a kind of a longer term project. So 
there's the Schuylkill River, the Delaware River, the Brandywine, and the Hudson Rivers are all explored in this exhibition. The work covers quite a range of different media and ways that the artists were responding to, to those water bodies. Um, in addition, we sprinkled throughout the show some information about kind of the etymology of the river's names, and like where the names that we currently use in modern parlance come from. For example, the Schuylkill River, that's a, a Dutch word for hidden river, because the Dutch settlers who, for, who were in Philadelphia area before it was actually Philadelphia, the story is that the Lenape Indians told told them that there was a, another river that flowed into the Delaware, but it was so difficult for them to find because of all the very extensive wetlands that were in that area. So they called it the Hidden River. Hmm. Um, but there were many other names that the Schuylkill has gone by, including a few different Lenape names um, that, for the most part, are not not used anymore. Um, it's, and the same goes for, for all of the, the other rivers. Different settlers call them different things. And yeah, so just kind of interesting to think about names as, like, names as relationship, but also, um, right. like power and like who gets to choose what something is called. That's interesting. Well, I think everybody knows the Schuylkill hidden or not, you know, it's a familiar word now, but there's also a great number of streams that have no name at all in the, in the area. Definitely. You know, so many of these tiny streams that don't have names are often not on the forefront of our minds because they're, because we don't know we don't know what to call them. We forget that they exist. They often go unprotected. Um, and so I think that that's definitely worth mentioning in, in the context of watershed protection is not just the rivers, but the smaller streams that feed into that whole system. One beautiful thing that I, I read while I was researching the concept for this show is by this writer named Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she said something like, giving something a name transforms it from wilderness into homeland. And I thought that was a really nice way to think about naming as like that it, it stops being something that's other and becomes something that is um, known and meaningful to you. So I would be interested to see if there was a study that kind of proved or validated that um, as far as watershed planning and getting people involved in, in naming these unnamed streams. That would be really interesting. So tell me more about the exhibit. Let's talk about some of the specific pieces. Do you have a, a favorite or, or any that are particularly interesting to talk about? Oh, sure. I love them all equally, of course, but I'll highlight a couple different ones. So Sandy Sorline is a, a very local artist. She actually lives in the same neighborhood where the Schuylkill Center is located. And she was looking at the Schuylkill River, um, but specifically the Schuylkill Navigation System, which is the series of locks and dams that were kind of like a shadow river of the Schuylkill that made it possible for the industrial development that made Philadelphia the major American city that it is now uh, possible for all that industry to happen. And that system of locks and dams has been largely abandoned and for the most part not preserved um, except in historical maps. And so she's a, a very adventurous photographer. She spent a few years using these old maps and doing a lot of kind of bushwhacking and kayaking and eventually um, created the only like existing contemporary record of the ruins of this navigation system. And some of them are mostly intact, but kind of ruinous. Uh, things. Other, others are not there at all. They're kind of paved over in parking lots, so 
even though this navigation system was very significant in the history of Philadelphia, there was no thought of historic preservation of it um, before it was kind of abandoned and left for nature to take it back or for development to pave over it. So she spent a few years documenting um, the kind of ghost river of the, of the Schuylkill River, if you will. So that's a really interesting project. Another really interesting one is Matthew Friday. Uh, he explored the Hudson River, and his work in the gallery um, includes both finished works as well as a little a mini research station for visitors. So um, there's a number of curated book selections that are related to water and land use and things like that that Matthew put together as well as a microscope and some water samples for people to look at while they're in the gallery. And Matthew does a lot of community engagement and sort of um, collective systems mapping. So he has a few different pieces in the show that um, visually diagram different aspects of the Hudson River system and how people conceptualize that and how um, industry and nature and communities all sort of fit together in different ways. And what's interesting about those works too is that the river and its surrounding lands are actually part of the materials that created the artworks. So he made dyes from riparian plants and algae. The paper is also made from riparian plants. Um, and he also created this very large work that's like a, a milled map of the Hudson River watershed itself that he um, he actually somehow managed to get his hands on some dredged material from the Hudson that was highly toxic, full of PCBs, that was dredged by GE a number of years back and created a pigment out of those very toxic substances and then lacquered it into a, a more stable and, and safe um, state. So I just thought it was really interesting how he was bringing the river into the work like as a participant and not just um, making something in response to the river, but bringing the materials of it into the, into the work. You know, it's interesting conceptually to have pollution or like natural materials be part of the work, but also um, as artists kind of grapple with their own carbon footprint or their environmental footprint as they create, they're creating their work, it often allows them to have like a lower impact in art creation itself. So they don't have to mm -hmm. buy petroleum based paints or pigments or things like that, um, but can, can gather what a lot of what they need from the environment and maybe even make it a little bit cleaner in the process. As we're speaking, this is just opened, so it's, it's early days, but I understand you had a reception not too long ago. What has the response been thus far from people that have seen these works? How are they, you know, how are they reacting to it? Mm. I think we've gotten a really great response. I think, um, People are really excited by the opportunity to learn more about the water bodies that they're, they're in a way familiar with already because they define kind of regional life um, where they are. Um, I've also found that everybody has kind of a story about rivers and about names. Um, so in the way that you um, brought up the idea of like unnamed streams, it seems like something that people are really like grasping onto as far as a concept. So that's been really interesting for me to to observe um, as people respond to the to the show. But we had a, a really wonderful turnout at the reception last week. Um, we had three of the artists on site speaking about their work. 
um, and pretty much a packed house in the gallery, which was really fun. I guess one more project I can highlight that I didn't mention is we have a large boat in the gallery that um, an artist collective named Mari Liberum put together with a group of Haverford students a couple of years ago and actually uh, sailed it on the lower Schuylkill River. And um, so especially for this show, they, they painted it with a, a diagram of tides and animals that live in the watershed and things like that. Um, but they use boat building and, and boating as a, you know, getting people on the water as a way to get people connected um, with these larger issues. So people seem to really enjoy just like seeing a boat in the gallery. That was kind of a novel um, idea for a lot of people. So that was, that was pretty fun to see. So uh, again, we said this just opened, but you're going to be running for quite some time through the spring. Is that right? Yep. It'll be on view through April 21st. So there's about three months um, that people can still come in and see it. And a few of the artists will be doing um, programming throughout the run of the show. Uh, For example, Sandy Sorline, the other artist I mentioned, will be leading a walk from the Schuylkill Center down to one of the locks that's pretty close by to our area. So people will get to see see the ruins and hear more from her about the history of that system, about the river, and about her her process in, in documenting um, these pieces of infrastructure. So that's, that's one example of how, um, yeah, the artist will still be involved in bringing people outside the gallery, using that as kind of a springboard for getting people into nature and seeing these things with their own eyes. And there's a lot more information about the artists and the works at schuylcenter.org, and I would encourage people to check that out. However, the goal is to get people in the doors, right? What else do patrons need to know about planning a visit, hours, location? Is there a, a fee or anything to get in? Nope, the Schuylcenter Center is, is totally free to visit. Uh, our trails are open from dawn to dusk every day. We have about four miles of trails if you uh, want to get into nature while you're here. Um, our trails go through all different ecosystems, like forests and ponds, and um, even small streams that flow into the Schuylkill River uh, eventually. So yeah, we're, we're free and open, and all you need is a good pair of walking shoes and an adventurous spirit. Um, we have staff on site in our visitor center building from 9 to 5, Monday through Saturday, that can help you plan your hikes um, and tell you more about our, our many programs. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the scoop. Sounds good. Christina, thanks for talking with me and good luck. Thank you. Christina Cadenese is Director of Environmental Art at the Schuylkill Center for Environmental Education. The exhibition Learn a River's Name runs through April 21st. You can find more information at schuylcenter.org or visit our website for photos and links. That's at peckpa.org, where you can also find past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies. More information on our program work in watersheds, as well as energy and climate, trails and recreation, policy, and much more. Check out the blog, check out the events listing, and listen to past episodes of the podcast, all at pecpa.org. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or listen on Google Play. Anywhere you find us, please take a moment to rate and review Pennsylvania Legacies. We'll have another episode later this month. We post new ones every other Friday at PACPA.org and all the aforementioned places. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 